Well, big events have big precursors. Most big events don't come unannounced, but are in themselves preceded by something else that is big, significant. see this oftentimes in nature. We normally think of earthquakes as being some of the most powerful forces on earth, and, and they are. Living in California, we're especially conscious of the power and danger of earthquakes. Back in 2004, though, you may remember the earthquake that struck off the coast of Indonesia. It was a record setter, the third largest earthquake ever recorded, measuring 9.1 on the Richter scale. Also the longest earthquake ever recorded, some 10 minutes long. The energy released during this earthquake was equivalent to 1,500 Hiroshima bombs. And it literally moved the earth one centimeter, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the earth. As amazingly powerful as this earthquake was, it did little damage itself. I don't think there were any recorded injuries or deaths or damage from the earthquake. But as we all know, undersea earthquakes are in themselves now precursors to something else, something more dangerous, and that would be tsunamis. This 2004 earthquake generated a wave that initially traveled at 600 miles per hour out in open water. As it got closer to the shore, it slowed way down and got way taller at places reaching 80 feet tall. And when it struck, the result was utter devastation. Reaching over a mile inland in some areas just wiped everyone out. The earthquake that came before, as far as we know, didn't kill anyone. But this tsunami took over 220,000 lives. But the tsunami didn't come from nowhere. Almost like a built-in warning system, this massive earthquake was the precursor to the massive tsunami. You often see a similar built-in warning system with tornadoes. Every year it seems like part of the Great Plains in our country is just wiped out by another tornado. And it makes us people in California ask, why would anyone want to live there? Why do people live there? And of of course, surely they ask the same thing of us. Why would someone want to live in earthquake country? I don't know about you, but I would take the threat of earthquakes to the threat of tornadoes any day. But that's just me. Anyway, as amazing and spectacular as tornadoes can be, they have their own little precursor. Of course, there's rain and wind and thunder and lightning. But there's one special precursor to tornadoes that you probably want to know about. And that is hail. It doesn't always happen, but if you're in a storm and you see hail start to fall, and I'm talking about massive baseball-sized hail start to fall, you better watch out because that funnel cloud may be forming pretty soon. The way this works is that in a a thunderstorm, strong updrafts of warm air are created, and they're matched by strong downdrafts of cold air. And these water particles get picked up at the updraft. They get sent way up into the atmosphere. They freeze. They fall back to Earth. But then they get picked up again. And each time they get picked up, they add a little layer of ice, this hail being formed. And the longer they're up there, the bigger they get. Soon they get so heavy, they fall to the ground. And normally we're used to seeing very small hailstones, size of a pea or something like that. But, but like I said, if you see baseball or softball-sized hail start to fall, you want to watch out because it takes some pretty powerful winds to keep that much ice in the air afloat for that long. And so extreme hail indicates 
extreme wind. An extreme wind indicates a tornado. All this goes to say that oftentimes big events themselves have big precursors. Rarely do significant events, either in nature or history, just come unannounced. Something comes before to to let you know. And as we begin to really open up the Gospel of Mark this morning, we already know what's coming. It's no surprise to us. Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's no more significant event than God tearing through the heavens and coming down to earth as the God-man, Jesus, the Christ. There's nothing so huge, so significant, so meaningful in all of history as this. But Jesus didn't come from nowhere. And his arrival was not unannounced. His coming had its own precursors. And this morning, as we set to get into the Gospel of Mark, we first come to witness the precursor to the Messiah's coming. Only Jesus was not preceded by an earthquake or a hailstorm, but rather by a person, a preacher, a prophet, a Baptist. (laughs) That's that's pretty funny, but not that type of Baptist. Not like a Southern Baptist, but John the Baptist. And whether you know it or not, John's coming was huge. So take your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Mark. Last week we got into Mark, just the first verse, Mark's very short introduction. Now we're continuing on the beginning of Mark. Mark chapter 1. All four Gospels start with John the Baptist. Now, yes, Matthew and Luke throw in a couple chapters first on the birth of Jesus, but straight away after that, they get to John. Because John was the beginning of Christ's ministry. John the Baptist actually is one of the main starting points for understanding who Jesus is and what he's coming to do. Mark himself gets to John in just the second verse, straight away, talking about John. And why does Mark do this? Why does Mark fail to include the birth of Jesus? Because he wants to get straight into the presentation of the gospel, and he's just following the pattern of the apostles and their preaching, specifically Peter and Paul. In Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 13, we see Peter and Paul respectively preaching the gospel, and where do they begin their gospel proclamation? It's not with the birth of Jesus. It's with the ministry of John the Baptist. The birth of Jesus, it's, of course, very important in revealing the identity of Christ as the God-man and signifying the purpose of his mission, absolutely. But the real good news is found in the atoning death of the Messiah. There was no atoning birth. And so Mark jumps in to the beginning of Christ's ministry. However, Mark is brief when it comes to John. This is the the Cliff Notes version, you could say. Mark tells us nothing about John's own birth, which itself was rather special. He mentions just a a short snippet of of John's preaching. The other Gospels tell us much more. Instead, Mark keeps it brief, lest you be fooled into thinking that this good news is about John. It's not about John. It's about Jesus. And Mark includes John only to the degree that John tells us 
about who Jesus is and what he's coming to do. That being said, Mark understands, as should you, just how immensely significant John's coming is. Nobody tells the story of the 2004 tsunami without mentioning that earthquake. And the same goes for Jesus and John. John's ministry was a huge event itself, and you can't underestimate its impact. Today, John the Baptist gets often overlooked, and in a sense, that's, that's appropriate, because it's not about John, it's about Jesus. But John's ministry was not overlooked in the first century. He made a huge splash in that time, in that area. Obviously, and rightly, the sun, Jesus, eclipses the moon, John. But sometimes, if you want to learn a little bit more about the glory of the sun, it's good to look at the moon. And that's what Mark does as he opens his gospel. He shows us John, who in turn shows us Jesus. And so today we're going to look through Mark chapter 1. Verses 2 through 8. And why don't you follow along as I read this opening of Mark, starting at verse 1. But the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me is one coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John, the greatest of the prophets, the greatest Old Testament saint, in particular. However, his greatness was not meant for him to serve himself, but to serve another. There was one coming after him. And as of John said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist himself was a, a forerunner, a precursor to the Messiah's coming. And his mission was to prepare the way. This morning, we want to learn about this forerunner and the way that he prepared. However, although it seems like John is at the center of this passage, it's not about John. It's really about Jesus and his way. John comes to prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus comes to lead the way, and now we are called to follow the way. So it is this way or this path that truly grabs our attention. And so I aim to show you from Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, four aspects of the way as revealed through the forerunner. Four aspects of 
the way, as revealed through the forerunner. And the first is this, the way prophesied. The way prophesied from verses 2 and 3. Look again at verse 2. After a short little intro, verse 1, he says in verse 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So very significant opening words in Mark right after his short little intro. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. This is actually the only time that Mark himself quotes the Old Testament in his entire gospel. Mark, of course, writing to a Roman Gentile audience, not expecting them to know much of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, there's still plenty of Old Testament in Mark. It comes from the mouth of Jesus, the mouth of others. But Mark himself, this is all he includes. Still, this is a very important link and beginning to Mark. And what does this tell you? You pick up Mark for the first time. You're immediately introduced to this Jesus figure. And then right after that, Mark says, quotes the Old Testament as if it's being fulfilled. What, what does that tell you? It tells you that this gospel, this good news, is not coming out of nowhere. Jesus doesn't come out of the blue. He comes out of the blueprint of God. God has a blueprint for man's redemption. He has a master plan to redeem Adam's race. And it started a long time ago. And I'm talking about a long, long time ago, before the foundation of the world. And this plan of redemption was set in motion right after the fall. And over the course of centuries, God has been unfolding and revealing this plan to man Little by little. Just imagine this. Imagine you draw a picture on this huge piece of paper, and then you crumple it up into a tiny little ball, and you, you ask someone, hey, so what did I draw? And they have no idea. They can't see what you drew. It's all crumpled up. But as you start to slowly unwrap and unravel this picture, they start to slowly but surely make out the picture that you drew. They start to get it. The more you unwrap it, the more they get. And here in Mark, it's like God is almost flattening out the paper. This is not prediction time. This is fulfillment time. God's plan of saving sinners has always been there. The coming of Jesus was not some plan B as if God failed salvation in the Old Testament. Jesus is the plan and he's being revealed. He's fulfilling the plan. And John the Baptist is the one to first reveal him. And even that was part of the plan. Even John was part of the plan. That's what these verses are saying. Here Mark refers to the fulfillment of two Old Testament passages jammed together, one from Malachi, one from Isaiah. And he, he, he follows a pretty common Jewish practice of only mentioning the major prophet, Isaiah, and not the minor prophet. But these are two references that are so perfectly fitting for the coming of Christ and, and really the coming of John, the forerunner. First, in verse 2, he quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read that for you. You can just listen along. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read you the whole verse. 
Malachi 3.1, God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 3 of Mark, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. And let me read for you verses 3 through 5, kind of a broader picture. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 3, a voice is calling, quote, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground be made plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now, a few observations are worthy of mention here. I don't know if you picked up on this, but when you compare the Old Testament passages themselves with the way that Mark uses them, there's a difference. Did you notice the difference? In the Old Testament, these passages did not refer to the coming of the Messiah. They referred to the coming of God himself. I'll say it again in case you missed it. Malachi 3.1, God says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. That's God speaking. Then Isaiah 43, chapter 40, verse 3, a voice calling in the wilderness, or rather a voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord, and that's Yahweh. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. These passages were talking about the coming of God himself before this messenger who is John. But all four gospel writers apply this passage not to God, but to Jesus. So what does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus fulfills the role of God, which can only mean that he is God himself. Oftentimes what is said to be true of God in the Old Testament is revealed to be fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. And this is a, a subtle yet very clear indication that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. It's not surprising. Mark just called him God the Son, or rather the Son of God. It's like Father, like Son. Now there's a second observation to make here. This messenger now that is spoken of, that this voice crying in the wilderness, whom we know to be John, of course, he's not the real focus here. The focus is on the one whom the messenger points to and his way. The messenger is just there to announce the coming of the Lord and his way. In, in turn, the Messiah comes and he leads the way. The, the way to where? The way to salvation, to redemption, to heaven, and to God. And get this, Jesus doesn't just lead the way, he is the way. Remember John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And just after our passage in Mark, shortly hereafter, we find Jesus calling his disciples, and what does he tell them to do? He tells them to follow what? Follow me. 
How can he say that? Follow me. It's because he's the way. And this way is our only hope of salvation ourselves, a way to life. Surely you can see that it's no coincidence that the earliest believers, they labeled this movement not Christianity. That came later. At first, they simply referred to themselves as what? The way. They were members of the way. That's it. And today we still are members of the way. And John came to prepare for the way. He says, or rather Isaiah says, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The ministry of John the Baptist was a ministry of alignment. He was not the savior. He was not the one doing the salvation. But he was to align the people's hearts back to God. Israel was way off track. Their hearts were not in line with the Lord. And John's mission was to set the people straight. It's like a bone broken and out of place. First, he had to set them straight. Then they could be healed. And John was to set the people back onto the path of the Lord so that when the Messiah did come, they would just run right into him. Be a no-brainer. Recently, I've been doing some front yard landscaping, and we had these we have these two planter beds in our new place. And previously, they had just a ton of rocks in them, just ugly white landscaping rocks and landscaping fabric and and packed dirt. It's just a nightmare. You can't plant in that. That's what we want to do. It's just, it's a nightmare. So the vast majority of my labor and sweat, I kind of here at the office, I work with my brain. Then I go home and I. I kind of sweat it out. And the vast majority of my sweat has been tilling that ground. I have to prepare it and till it up so that I can finally plant something and it will grow. And that's what Mark was doing. Or, I'm sorry, that's what John was doing. John came to till the hearts of the people, to prepare them to receive the seed of the gospel which Jesus would implant. So what we find is the book of Mark opens as the way of salvation revealed. God has a plan. He's unfolding the plan. John is revealing the plan. And it's not new. This is not a new plan. It began long ago. And first, we learn of the way prophesied. The way prophesied. Secondly now, we learn of the way preached. The way preached. This from verse 4. He says, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here we see now this messenger is John. We learn his name now, John. John was a very common Jewish name. In fact, Mark, his Jewish name was also John. He was John Mark. But this John, to separate him from all the others, was given a special name, John the Baptist. And no, Baptist was not his last name. It's what he was known for. However, although we think of John as a baptizer, he first was a preacher. And just like the prophets of old, John came proclaiming God's message and heralding to the people the way of the Lord. He came to call the people to repent and to turn their hearts back to God, just like the prophets 
In truth, John was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And he came preaching, it says here, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is important. It doesn't say he was baptizing. It said he came preaching a baptism. And yes, he did baptize, but first he preached. John was not interested in just simply administering a, a ceremony, the ceremonial baptism, come one, come all. No, there's a message here that went first. There's a message which by necessity preceded this baptism. And it was a message of repentance. And it demanded a response. And what is repentance? Repentance includes sorrow and remorse over your sin. But it goes beyond that. It's where you change your mind toward your sin. You turn on it. You hate it. And that necessarily leads you to change your action. When you repent of your sin, you are seeing your sin for what it really is as being fundamentally opposed to God's way. So you turn. You turn away. And you return to God, seeking his forgiveness, seeking to walk in his way. That's what John came to preach. Just like Isaiah. Just like Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 7. And what a precious verse. A verse you want to just file away in your mind. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, for he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This was the message John fearlessly pronounced. Letting people know what they must do to get their hearts right with God. Because someone else is coming after him. But this message demanded a response. All have sinned. None are without guilt. And so everybody needs this repentance and this forgiveness that he's preaching. But there are two types of responses. Hopefully you will humble yourself, acknowledge your sin before God, and genuinely repent. And this is the right response. This is the response of faith. And only those who displayed this response were in turn baptized by John. That's right. This, this was not just a blind baptism session. You know, come one, come all. No. It was come only the repentant. John's baptism did not produce repentance. It did not produce the forgiveness of sins. Rather, it signified and symbolized that a person had already repented and been cleansed by God on the inside. John's baptism, just like ours today, was an outward sign of an inward change. And this is why, mind you, that John refused to baptize people who displayed the wrong response. Did you know that? He refused to baptize certain people. I said there's two types of responses. Well, the other response, some people will, they will deny their sin. They will contend that, that they're a good person. And they will claim that they don't have anything to repent of. And this is clearly the wrong response. Such a person lives in denial, blinded by their self-righteousness, 
found in Matthew, we learn that John refused to baptize the Jewish leaders when they came to him for this very reason. I mean, look, they kept the law. They were supposedly righteous. What need did they have of repentance? I mean, for them, for them to be baptized by John was an admission of guilt and unrighteousness. But do you catch that? That's very important because that's actually true. That's true. I really want you to get John's baptism here. It truly was an admission of guilt and unrighteousness before God. I mean, this was a radical thing. At this time, Jews were not baptized. No Jew was baptized. If anything, a few Gentile converts were ceremonially cleansed of their defilement. But look, if you're a child of Abraham, you're already clean. I mean, you're in. What do you need this baptism for? But if they were honest with themselves and their sin, they would have realized they were just as defiled as the Gentiles. All people need this cleansing from God. And that's why John came preaching repentance even to Jews. So if, if you were there, you're a Jew, you're there, you go out to see John, you listen to his message of repentance, you believe, you get baptized, you are essentially admitting your guilt and your unrighteousness before God. If only more people today would do the same thing. But understand, this was something so new and so radical in Israel. They had never seen something like this before. That's how John got his name, John the Baptist. Because they had, they had not encountered a person like this before. This was unheard of. Now, if you get all this, if, if you're tracking, there's one more little detail in verse 4 that you can appreciate now. Look in verse 4. Where did all this happen? Where did John minister exclusively? It was in the wilderness. And there's a lot in that one little word. When you think of the wilderness, what comes to your mind? For us Americans, us Californians, we think of maybe Yosemite or Big Sur. We think of these untouched, enchanted forests with, you know, bunnies and birds and squirrels chirping and all that stuff. It's, you know, Disney wilderness. But when you read the Bible, this is nothing like you should think of when it comes to the wilderness. The wilderness, both inside the promised land and out, was a rugged, barren, desolate wasteland. It was treeless, arid. The ground was chalky. The heat was oppressive. Some things lived, but only things that wanted to kill you. It was a barren place. It was not a picnic, not a vacation destination. But even more significantly than this, spiritually, what did the wilderness mean to the Jew? It's kind of hard, but you have to put yourself in the, in the mindset of that ancient Jew. Remember, so much of their identity was wrapped up in, in this land, this promised land. But before they got to the land, they had to pass through the wilderness. And this fact would not have escaped the Jewish mind back then. It is not insignificant that John avoided all the centers of civilization for his ministry. He only ministered in the wilderness. That was not an accident. 
I mean, why? There's plenty of water in the cities, and there's more people there. So why wilderness? It's because John knew he was preparing for a new way and a new exodus. The Jews, hey, they were in the land, but they were still enslaved. That was going to change. A spiritual exodus was coming where they would be set free from their slavery to sin. But first, they had to go back to the wilderness. Like I said, in the Jewish mind, that this imagery would not have been missed. So much more than we get today. It was self-condemning enough to be baptized by John, but, but trekking back into the wilderness, it's kind of piling it on. In all, participating in John's ministry was an implicit admission that Israel had failed and that you were condemned. You were a sinner and you were guilty. Something more was needed. A new exodus was needed. A new way was needed. And John came and he preached that way. He also paved that way. This leads to the third aspect of the way we want to learn. The way prophesied first, the way preached second, third now, the way paved from verses 5 and 6, the way paved. Look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Well, we learn some more details about John's ministry here, some significant truths to point out. We see, his, we see the huge response to his ministry. It's, it's as if everybody went. They did so in the Jordan River, confessing their sins, being baptized like we learned about. It, it was no small thing, though, to go out and see John. This was not a, a casual trip down the street. The distance from Jerusalem to the Jordan River at the shortest was 20 miles. And it was an elevation difference of 4,000 feet. That's quite a hike. It was difficult going down that rugged hillside, and it was harder coming back home. This is not an easy trip. You wouldn't make this trip just for anyone. But hundreds and later thousands came to see John. I mean, the people were in wonder. God had been silent for 400 years. At this time, they only knew of the prophets in their scriptures. I mean, they're just stories. There weren't any prophets anymore. God, God was done. But then this rumor spreads that, that a new prophet has arisen. A real prophet has come, like the days of old. He, uh, he's back. I mean, can this be true? Is God speaking again? He's out in the wilderness, and when people go to see him, they come back changed. So it can, is this the real deal? So you decide to go out to see him. You take this long, several-day journey on foot. You finally make it to the Jordan River. In the distance, you see this crowd sitting down on a sloping hillside, and they're, they're watching this guy preach. And then you see the crowd stand up, and they start to wade into the Jordan River. And this guy, you see him start to dunk them under one by one, you think to yourself, this must be this baptism, and this must be John. And when you see John, 
What do you see? Verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. What is this? You're probably thinking, like, what, what on earth? You may think this is a crazy person. This kind of sounds like one of those desert wackos. You know the guy who lives in an RV outside of Area 51? Like one of those weird people, and that's maybe what they thought. But to the Jew, this description would have instantly conjured up a picture in their mind. They, they got this more than we do now. Now, just to, just to show you this, humor me. I, I'm going to read you a description of a person, and you just you know, tell me who comes to your mind right away when I read you a short description. Just picture this. A tall, lengthy man wearing a tall, black stovepipe hat with an all-black suit and a full black beard. Lincoln. You all, you all got it right away. Abraham Lincoln. We, we just know this. It's ingrained in our mind because it's part of our culture. Well, to the Jews... When they saw or heard John's description, like verse 6 says, instantly they, they got it. They knew. They had no doubt. It's Elijah. That's Elijah the Tishbite. They would have understood. For this was Elijah's uniform. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. This is just this is what he wore to work. The Jews recognize the symbolism here. This, this guy, John, he's a lot like Elijah. He looks like Elijah. He preaches like Elijah. And so compare with the fact that Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, predicts that Elijah will precede the Messiah and the coming day of the Lord. It is no wonder that some people thought John was Elijah. And guess what? He was. John was Elijah. It's like Jesus said, if you're willing to accept it, Elijah has come. And no, not literally. We're not talking about a reincarnation. But like Jesus also said, John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah fulfilling this prophecy. He was the forerunner. So we find a few very impactful truths just from the way John looks. First, he's going off of his dress. And what a contrast. The typical Jewish leader at the time they were well-groomed, and they wore this long, flowing, ornate robe. looks like a king's robe. They were clean. They were proper. They were immaculate compared to John, who was dirty and grimy, and he probably smelled. Just face it. Yet his lifestyle itself was a protest against the materialism, selfishness, comfort, complacency, and hypocrisy of the Jewish culture and leaders of the day. They may appear all perfect, but inside, they're whitewashed tombs. And John, he may appear all dirty, he may appear poor, but he actually leads to spiritual riches. So once again, if you're a Jew and you're going out to John, this crazy guy in the desert, wearing camel hair. Now, what are you doing? Just by going, you're breaking from religious tradition. Just by going, you're saying there's something insufficient with our current religious establishment. Just by going. Now, we can make an additional point here. If John 
came as Elijah. Then wait a second. What does that say about Jesus who came after John? It says that Jesus was the Messiah. Because everybody knows that the Messiah comes after Elijah. Again, even in the first few verses, we see Mark letting us know through John's ministry who's coming after him and the way he's going to lead. John paved this way. And finally, we come now to this last aspect of the way we want to understand. Number four, the way perceived. The way perceived, verses seven and eight. We finally hear John speak, verse 7. And he was preaching, saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knew, John perceived that the way wasn't him. He was not the way, the truth, and the life. There's someone else, someone coming after him, he said, who is mightier than I. Kind of strange, because in the world's eyes, John was not mighty. In the world's eyes, John was not powerful. He was poor and weak. So for John to say, you know, someone coming after me is, is mightier than I, well, like everyone is mightier than John, seemingly. It's like the wimpiest guy at the gym saying, the next guy who walks through that door is going to be stronger than me. It's like, well, no duh, everyone is stronger than you. But John was mighty. And John was powerful. And John was great spiritually. Even Jesus himself said, Matthew 11, 11, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Up to that time, he's number one. In the eyes of God, his plan of salvation, no one played a more significant role before Jesus than John the Baptist. I mean, he was a big deal. But he knew, even still, he's not the way. It's not with him. Someone else coming after him, whom he's not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. This illusion, again, would have made perfect sense to them back then. In that ancient world, everyone wore sandals, even the rich. And the first thing a rich person did when they got home was... Their slave came, stooped down, untied their sandals, and washed their feet. This was the lowest task of the slave. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, this is what separates a disciple from a slave. A disciple was willing to render all service to his master except untying his sandals. That's only something a slave would do. But here John says he's not even worthy to do a slave's work. He's not even comparable to the one coming after him. That's what he's saying. Because John, well, he baptized with water. But the one coming after him is baptizing with the Holy Spirit. We just finished a six-week study on baptism. You can get that if you want to learn more about this baptism of the Spirit. But John's baptism, like our water baptism, was symbolic. He was merely dunking people in the dirty Jordan River. That's all. That didn't make them clean before God. It didn't clean you. 
No amount of washing or dunking or doing works can make you clean on the inside before God. Nothing you can do can give you a clean heart before God. And John knew that. He knew his baptism wasn't changing people. It was merely preparing the way. Like we learned, he was aligning people to God. He was returning them to God's path so that when the Messiah showed up, they would just run right into him and accept him. And the Messiah was coming right after John. He would come baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. And this, as we learned, is a reference to the new birth, which the Holy Spirit brings about. Man has a radical problem, a sin problem, a radical solution is needed Something as crazy as life from death, as new birth, a new heart, heart transplant, spiritually speaking. And only one person can offer this. It's not John. It's one coming after him. And who might that be? What does verse 9 say, which we'll see next week, where after John says all this, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. It's Jesus. Jesus is the way. I trust now you understand what I meant when I said earlier that although John occupies this passage, it's not about him. It's not about John. It's about Jesus. It's about the way. The way prophesied, the way preached, the way paved, the way perceived. It's all meant to get us to Jesus. And now all that's left is for me to ask you, are are you on the way? Are you a member of the way? Have you given your life to the way? And I mean seriously. You've committed to following Jesus. Later, we're going to see this pivotal passage in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus tells people, if you want to be his disciple, with comes with eternal life, that you must follow him. And contrary to American Christianity, this is no small thing. It's a free gift, sure, but it costs you everything. Have you done that? Are you willing to do that? Giving your life completely over to the way. Some people have these obstacles in their life, in their heart, which prevents them from turning to Jesus. Even Christians, those who are saved, sure, still have little obstacles in their life which keep them from a greater pursuit of the Lord. And John encountered people like this. Not everyone accepted his ministry of alignment. And in turn, he didn't baptize them. He refused to baptize them. These people refused to turn from their sin. They refused to turn to God. It's because their hearts were already devoted to something else. When the hypocritical Pharisees came to John, John told them. He said, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. And what does that mean? It means the Pharisees, they were counting on this to get them in. But really, this was just an obstacle. They had an obstacle in their heart that kept them from the true way. They thought that the way into the kingdom was through birth, was through lineage, their ancestry. And they were in. They were children of Abraham. They were Pharisees. They're at the top of the list. They're in. But they weren't. 
They thought to themselves, well, what do we need of John's way? I mean, we're on the way. But they weren't. Jesus encountered similar people with other obstacles. Remember the rich young ruler? Here was a guy who was seemingly on the cusp of the kingdom. It's like he was ready to just give his life to Jesus. But Jesus knew something else occupied his heart. And so when he tested him and said, hey, choose mere wealth, the guy got up and walked away. He walked away from the way because he had this roadblock in his heart. And you here, you may have a roadblock in your heart from self-righteousness to greed, from tradition to just, just comfort. Is there something keeping you from the Lord? Even for Christians, is there something keeping you from a greater devotion to the Lord? Maybe you're, you're so lukewarm because in reality, you serve another master mostly in life. And so what is it? I don't know. You need to examine your heart, find it, and tear it down lest you miss the way. And speaking of the Pharisees, not only did they reject John and his way, but they did so because they were hardened in their sin. Meaning, when they saw John, they believed they had nothing to repent of. I mean, they were good. They were good people. They were the best. They saw no real sin in their lives. So why did they need John's baptism? Why did they need this repentance? But in reality, were they just fine? No, they weren't. They were rotten to the core, just like you. They were sinners, just like you. And they were transgressors of God's will, just like you. Which is why all of us need this repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But they refused to humble themselves in the eyes of God, in the eyes of others. They refused to confess their sin, to cry out to God for mercy. And so they missed the way. I say this frequently, but it really is the, so important. You can't make yourself born again. That's the whole point. You can't do it. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's a supernatural work. Only God can do it. And he chooses. So what can you do? However, in mercy, God has promised that to, do, to those who humble themselves and confess their sin before him and cry out to him for mercy, he will hear and he will save. And that's a promise. Some of you may still be running from your sin, meaning you continue to live life as if you, you've got it all together. You're, you're doing just fine. You're a good person. You don't need the way. You're right with God. Maybe you even go through the motions. But that's all they are. Motions. You need to bear your heart open with God. Be honest with yourself, with others. Confess your sin. Repent. God will forgive. And then renew your commitment to follow him on the way. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. And if you want real change in your life, I mean real change, it's the only way. You can find rituals anywhere. That'll make you feel better. 
like a better person. You can find any religion in the world. They'll splash you with water or dunk you with water, make you feel more spiritual, but it won't do anything to change you. Nothing to change you. You need an inner change, a heart change. It comes only one way, and Jesus is the way. Go to him, follow him daily, and live. And let's thank God for sending men like John and others who point us to the way. Lord in heaven, we bow before you. All we can do is praise you for showing us the way. We were lost. We confess. Oh, we confess. We were lost from your way. Our hearts were not with you. They were far from you, and we were wandering in the wilderness. But in your mercy and your love, you reached out, showed us the way, and saved us. So we say thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We praise you for coming, for showing the way, for dying to open the way, and for enabling us to see the way. Lord, my heart goes out here for those, those even now who are still stubborn in their hearts and proud in their position, bold in their sin. Lord, you need to do work, and I pray you do so in their hearts to humble them over their sin, to break them, that they would just cry out for mercy. It's all we can do. And mercy is to be found. New birth is there. It's it's waiting by your power. I pray you work in their lives. And for those already made alive, may they strive after you all the more so. May you clear even the remaining clutter in their hearts now that we can all pursue you with a passion. That's what this life is about and giving you the glory and being blessed. And that's what comes when we are on the way. We bless your name. And we thank you for our time in the word. In your name we pray. Amen.